0: Hi, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups. Welcome back. We took a much-needed break, obviously, and we're excited to be back with some new energy. You can hear it. Can't you hear my energy? <laughs> Big changes. And also a new co-host. So welcome.
1: Hey, guys. It's Becca Skutek coming to you from TC+.
0: Nice. TechCrunch+. Plus, Everyone's favorite destination for premium TechCrunch content. Right, Becca?
1: Anything exclusive.
0: what do you find interesting generally what are you like focused on most of the time becca
1: i'm always more focused not on what the big guys are doing but kind of what everyone else is doing i feel like we get a lot of focus in this industry on the andresans and the sequoias but you forget that the rounds they're in include generally five plus other investors usually small funds and i found like what those guys are up to The smaller players is generally where I try to spend the most of my time.
0: Right, and that's perfect for found because that's where we spend the most of our time with companies who maybe listeners haven't heard of before. Occasionally we have somebody, you know, with a little more name recognition on the show, reluctantly, I would say. But generally we focus on entrepreneurs who are just starting out and building something super new and exciting. And a lot of the investors they cite as being the most helpful end up being those small investors that you're talking about, Becca. So I'm sure you'll hear a lot of familiar names uh, as we get into this.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, people forget those are like the real drivers of the industry. Without those players, the industry would not be what it is today.
0: That's right. And same for you, the entrepreneurs who are our guests, including today, we're talking to Valentina Milanova from Day, a genealogical health startup that makes CBD-coated organic tampons and other menstrual health products. It's the beginning of an empire, Becca.
1: Mm -hmm. She's taking the world of gynecological consumer products by storm, it seems.
0: That's right. Well, we think so anyway, but we'll let you judge. So let's hear from Valentina. Hi, Valentina. How's it going?
2: Hi, it's going well. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, great to have you here. So to get us started, do you want to explain to us and our listeners just a bit about Day and what the company is?
2: Yeah, so we are building a comprehensive gynecological health platform that aims to rediscover the tampon, the menstrual tampon, as an item that does a lot more than just soaking up menstrual fluid. So we started in March 2020 with the introduction of the world's first CBD tampon. And we're now expanding to using the menstrual tampon for diagnostic purposes as well, so we can detect gynecological health diseases at home. And in the future, we want to be the one go-to place for all things gynecological health from your first menstruation through to menopause and beyond. Awesome.
0: Cool. So do you want to maybe give us a little bit of background of how you got into that business? You mentioned you know, that you introduced the product in 2020, is that right? But I think the company, you've been at work at it for a bit longer than that, probably doing some research and figuring out the product details prior to launch. But do you want to give us some of the background of the company?
2: Yeah. So I started day in 2017. And for the first year and a half, I financed everything using credit
1: cards
2: (laughs) yeah i just treated it as a as a research project i didn't think it was to be a, a business or anything um the process i had in my mind was okay i'm spending the equivalent of what i will spend on an mba on my credit cards but i'm kind of getting a business education so it's fine even if i have to like wash dishes for the rest of my life too Make up this that I'll be I'll be okay, and the reason why I was so interested in the space I, I had this idea about a pain relieving tampon which would be made out of the fibers of industrial hemp and infused with the extract from industrial hemp that's pain relieving. The reason why this idea kind of stuck with me is because when I was doing research on the space on on the tampon manufacturing space. I realize that it's one of the areas that has greatly lacked innovation since mm. tampons were, were first invented. And actually an interesting fact for you that you might not be aware of is tampons were not originally designed for the female physiology. So the, the BBC did some research and, and they found out that uh, tampons were designed as a shape to plug bullet wounds in soldiers oh. in World War One and World War II. And the nurses that were looking after the soldiers repurposed the tampons for their own needs by adding a string to them. Wow. So that's just one of the many realizations that I had about the tampon industry as a whole, is how monopolized it is, how lacking innovation it is, and then From spending more time in the space, I also realized that the issue with lack of innovation is not just in the tampon space, it's in gynecological health more broadly. So I discovered that, for example, women weren't allowed to participate in clinical trials until 1993 because it was believed that our menstrual cycles would pollute the quality of clinical data or that we could always be pregnant. And as a result of that, the majority of medications on the market today, whether it's painkillers or sleep medications, were never tested on the female physiology. That's not something that I knew before Mm -hmm. founding the company, but it really inspired me to try and do something that would at least in some small way alleviate the many injustices that exist within gynecological health today. So personally very driven by solving what I perceive to be an injustice and I think the lack of adequate care that women get when seeking treatments for diseases that are female-specific, or or when when going to the clinic, it's one of the greatest modern injustices. And I would like to do something about it.
0: Yeah, I, I had no idea. I mean, that's the detail you brought up about the like the original use and design, like that is mind-boggling because it seems like as you were talking about it, I was thinking over you know. My short snapshot of history, thinking about advertisements and whatever, it doesn't seem like things have changed that much, right? Mine, mine is a small subsection, but it's like, it still spans like you know twenty, thirty yeah. years of watching TV and seeing like there's obviously been no change in this market in terms of the product they're presenting you, right? But Becca, did you have any idea about any of the origins or design or anything like that?
1: No, I mean I know like innovation in women's health has never been great but I mean oh my god I did not I'm like still kind of spiraling spiraling about that like the tampon wasn't even designed for women like jeez I just feel yeah. like I agree with you about the advertising it's just like every ad is well you can wear this tampon in a white tennis skirt and that's like the only ad campaign there's right. been for like my whole life i
0: think right right but yeah and then they show the product and you're like that looks exactly the same as everyone i've ever seen and yeah there's never anything about kind of like materials or whatever they just like pour the liquid they're like safely colored liquid on and the, the thing. liquid it's,
2: is always blue
0: yeah yeah exactly yeah but yeah so what are the benefits then of this that you mentioned that you can use this? I believe it's like an analgesic, right? Like the, it's a natural analgesic in yeah, the so- material.
2: We, we can't advertise any pain relief claims because we, mm. we care a lot to stay on the right side of regulations, which is mm-hmm. actually not something that happens neither in the cannabis space nor in the tampon space. But while we have research that points to a pain relieving effect and you know our product has been on the market in Europe for the past four years, we can't actively advertise pain claims because only drugs and prescription drugs are allowed to make pain claims. So what we do in, instead is, you know, we invite customers to read our Trustpilot review page or to just try the product for themselves mm. and, and see what, what the effect is. But the cannabidiol layer isn't the only way in which we set about to make the menstrual tampon better. We have also optimized the absorbency. So one of the issues with tampons is that they leak, they stay in your underwear, they stay in your trousers. We created the most absorbent organic tampon on the market. And then we also care a lot about safety, which, again, is not really... Really prioritize within menstrual health and, and gynecological health more broadly. So, another interesting thing about tampons. There's no requirement to produce tampons in a clean environment. Mm. So you know how plasters, for example, or hand sanitizer, you would produce in a clean room and the production workers would be wearing a suit and maybe wearing gloves. That's not the case in tampon manufacturing. And there's also no mandatory requirements to sterilize the item after it's been through your production process, which is not great by itself. But it's also not great when you think about the fact that uh, there's no requirement for clean a clean environment during manufacture so that's another thing that we implemented we're the first ampone brand to be certified under gmp iso 13485 we also maintain c technical documents which you know you probably don't know what any of these words mean but they're the quality certifications that you need to obtain for your production in order to manufacture as if you were a medical device so we think that if we as societies, you know, we wash our clothes to remove bacteria. We sterilize our food and to remove bacteria. It doesn't make sense that we would keep pathogens on the surface right. of tampons before they enter the vagina, especially given how absorbent the vaginal canal is. And another area of female health that gets very little attention is the vaginal microbiome, which is, you know, you probably have heard about the gut microbiome or the skin microbiome. Mm-hmm. But there's also the vaginal microbiome, which is associated with your ability, your body's ability to prevent infections, to decrease your likelihood of contracting an STI. Your microbiome is what ensures that you can carry a pregnancy to term. And your microbiome is influenced by the pathogens that you bring into the vagina. So you can bring pathogens through tampons to the vaginal canal and the vaginal microbiome. And that's something that we aim to prevent with the introduction of clean manufacturing as well as sterilization.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's also shocking, though. Another shocking thing to learn where, like, that was the case previously, because it seems. It's still
2: it's the just, case. Uh, so it's still uh, the case with the majority. But, well, of no, members. yeah.
0: Well, I, I mean, b- before you started doing it differently. Mm-hmm. Yes. But yeah, like, for everybody else out on the market, like, that's still the case. Yeah, that's. It's. I've, like, on the one hand, I feel I empathize with what I imagine would be just intense anger, like, learning all these things are happening. And then on the other hand, it kind of. From like a business person's perspective, there must be a feeling of like, oh, this is fantastic because what our opportunity is, is like, hey, we just do the bare minimum. Like Mm, (laughs) we're like making it clean versus the unclean one. Like, which one do you want? Right? Like it's kind of... (laughs) It seems great in that way, but also it's just shocking. at a. There
2: is a downside. Right. So I mentioned the uh, cleanliness standards. So we have the absorbency, which comes through material product innovation. You know, we also have a flushable tampon wrapper that reduces plastic waste. All of these things make the product more expensive. So that is the downside. We are between 50 and 100 percent more expensive than off the shelf brands because, you know, we do all of these additional things. And that's something that we want to change in the future when Mm. we reach scale, because right now our scale is very small. We have about 10,000 monthly current subscribers. We have sold about 60,000 boxes so far. So our production is almost artisanal. And once we get to a bigger scale, we'll be able to reduce our costs and and pass these savings on to consumers. But right now we do have to make a big ask, which is to, to ask people to pay that little bit extra for their period care, which is actually particularly hard in the United Kingdom, which is the main market that we're operational in. Because there's a big conversation there with uh, regards to free period care. People do mm-hmm. speak a lot about making period care free for, for everyone. So yeah, that is the downside too. And that's why other brands don't do it. There's a big focus on you know optimizing your margin, increasing your revenues. And you can't do that while also investing in R&D and also investing in, in higher standards. Or at least not at first.
0: Yeah, the question that I would have there then is, are you interested or do you attempt to change the kind of standard across the industry? Because it seems like that would in some ways benefit you all. If you changed it so that there's a universal standard to require like cleanliness of facilities.
2: So we really hope this happens. And that's why we're quite public about we don't really keep many trade secrets. You know, you you have our lab certificates on our website, our quality certifications on our website, the materials that we use in our packaging, uh, which make the packaging more sustainable, like the flushable materials. We do want these to become the industry norm because, you know, that's the only way that will reach a bigger scale and and more people will benefit from having access to better quality products. But also at the same time, that's the only way in which we will be able to reduce the cost associated with doing things the right way.
1: I feel like from other sort of consumer areas, though, consumers have proven that they are willing to sort of pay more for especially something like you mentioned that's sustainable and has clean ingredients and definitely sort of has sort of like the mission alignment that they're going for. So I'm curious Are you able to kind of tap into that when you're marketing and kind of get yeah, some of that response as well.
2: We are. And, and that's what, you know, our commercial success is, is based on currently. And I always say this, you know, getting a manicure, which you do maybe every two weeks or every four weeks, that's what, like 40, 50 bucks. Going to a single Barry's bootcamp class is, you know, I don't know, I haven't gone in a while, but that's probably <laughs> 20, 30 bucks. And and that's, you know, half the cost of, of our tampons. But I think I've recently been thinking about this, how, because women and afab individuals we didn't really get access to good quality medical services we were kind of forced to instead turn to like the whole well-being wellness Mm -hmm. look after yourself you know buy a new face cream type of industry and i think we're used to being fine with paying like 80 dollars for a mascara but then we're not so used to investing in healthcare on the inside mm. i think advertising and just like modern societal standards have like really trained us that yeah you know like i definitely need this new push up bra or like a sports bra but then when we're not so knowledgeable about what we need to do in order to maintain our health on the inside and that's something that we want to change by by changing the the conversation altogether about gynecological health by sharing information about our research, sharing information about our standards, and doing it in a really digestible way. One of our values is that you shouldn't need a medical degree in order to understand your body. And I think frequently there's such a huge barrier to people understanding what they need to do in order to maintain their health because there's this exclusionary highbrow language that's used in order to describe various healthcare services and products. And and we want to change that with our blog, vitals, with our presence on social media. Our presence on social media isn't like, oh, look at this product, buy it, buy it, buy it. It's more like, here's uh, the symptoms of endometriosis and here's what to do if you think you have PCOS. It's focused on providing utility to the customer before we ask them to make a purchasing decision.
0: Yeah, I think, like, that's a very astute observation about the difference between, like, aesthetics and, like, what consumers have in terms of willingness around spend for aesthetics or whatever, acceptance. And it's it's so deep-seated. Like, when you bring it up that way, it's like, wow, this is really ingrained from birth and conditioned, right? Like, through popular culture. So, yeah. It seems a huge challenge to get around, but it sounds like you're doing everything you can on the education front to try to do that. And we've seen other companies that have been on the podcast before using tools like TikTok, right? To have like really deep, meaningful, educational conversations with their potential customers or customers, right?
2: Yeah, I find TikTok fascinating. I I don't know if you spend much time on it, but... How open people are with things that we would have otherwise classified as grotesque or traumatic. I find that the majority of content on TikTok is like your deepest rooted, like fears and traumas and, you know, psychological quirks. And I think that's such an interesting way of being. And it just shows how, you know, Gen Z is completely changing what's acceptable in a social domain and and what isn't, which I'm personally very excited about because that means we'll also have more gynecological health conversations more openly. And then that will make my fundraising easier (laughs) (laughs) because I'll be able to mention the word tampon without people looking to the ground and feeling uncomfortable. (laughs) So that would be great. You know, something, something I noticed whenever an investor tells us that they know of day or they know of the tampons, they always feel the need. That's male investors. They always feel the need to caveat, but I haven't used your products. I'm like no one no, thought what? you would have used our products. Like, that's, that wasn't in anyone's mind. Like, why do you have to explain it? <laughs>
0: is like, that oh, meant like as heard- a joke or are they just
2: <laughs> <laughs> no they're just it's, it's like an insurance you know like oh making sure that i know they don't have a secret vagina i'm like i know you don't <laughs> have a
1: secret
0: <laughs> vagina
1: it's okay <laughs> you're uh, like glad you made that clear <laughs> yeah yeah
0: that i mean that's the biggest question i have just about when you're bringing up kind of the challenges like you seem very candid and aware and like frank about them all How does this, like, how are the investor conversations going? So, you have that level of awkwardness of like a lot of them are male and a lot of them are like, don't even want to talk about this to begin with or are not comfortable discussing it. And then you have the other layer of you're fully aware of, you know, the challenges are right against you and seem very candid about discussing that. So, like, how does it go with the investor rooms? Is it a difficult conversation to have or how has your raise process been?
2: It's challenging. So I'm a single founder. I'm Eastern European. I'm in my 20s. So I don't fit, you know, the, the checkboxes of who venture capitalists typically like to invest in. And then right. I come in with my accent and I talk about the vaginal canal and I talk about tampons. I can't describe what my company does without making people feel fundamentally uncomfortable, you know, without forcing people to look to the ground. And interestingly, it's both men and women. Mm. So both men and women still feel deeply uncomfortable discussing gynecological health in a professional environment so you know when when you have a zoom call with investors or when you're in a board meeting room people feel like oh is this an appropriate topic for us to be discussing right now and and the only way in which they has been successful at, at fundraising is through just sheer perseverance. I don't have a huge investor network. I'm not an industry insider, so I can't like WhatsApp my friends and say, like, hey, would you like to invest in my company? But I do have access to LinkedIn, and people on LinkedIn add the word investor or venture capitalist to their description, so then I can find them and I can message them and find their email address and send them more emails and more messages. And For our Series A, we spoke to over 400 firms. So I know all of the firms, I think. In every geography, we spoke to people in Israel, Portugal, Germany, Austria, obviously the United States and the UK, until we we found the incredible investors we have right now who really understand our vision, really understand the impact that the company can have. But there were lots of moments where I felt like, okay, I'm completely on my own here because I can't tell the team. You have to shield your team, right, from the hundreds of no's that you get and I also have my existing board and I need them to be excited about the company so I can't I mean I have to give them information on what's happening but I can't you know share the pain that I'm experiencing from you know every single no or you know just investors muting themselves and then picking up a phone call while we're on a video chat things like that I can't (laughs) share that so it's a very lonely experience but what I really wish people could take away from my fundraising journey and this fundraising journey is that if you know, like a 20 year old Eastern European who didn't go to like Oxbridge or the Ivy League colleges and then work for JP Morgan, etc., can raise seed money and series A money, then other people can do it too. Mm. And I think so much of VC and startups, it's quite an exclusionary industry. It's a very small circle. And I think people think, oh, I have to be a certain type. I have to be a certain way in order to even allow myself to think or dream about starting a company. And I, I hope that the the story and, and the candidness with which I feel quite strongly about being very candid with regards to, you know, we didn't have the perfect fundraise. I emailed two firms with my pitch deck and only on the basis of the pitch deck, they sent me 12 term sheets and right. a cake and a <laughs> flowers. <laughs> I don't know what, but um, when I was fundraising, I was seeing all of these stories on LinkedIn of other founders being like, Closed the series being two weeks. I was so fast. Only spoke to four firms. am like, that's not everybody's fundraising journey. Right. And we need to show other stories as well. Cause I think uh, it's easy to glorify the ones that are super quick and, and fast. Although if you manage to do that more power to you, you know, great. Sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was curious to ask you about the fundraising process specifically because I feel this is in the women's health space, of course. And calls to invest more in women's health and sort of investors putting a higher focus on this area, I feel like I'm hearing about it almost every day. And yet you still don't see it really translate into actual fundraising success for companies in this space. And I'm curious, will this chatter sort of ever pan out, like, literally, like, will you this sort of increased focus ever translate into it becoming easier for companies like you to fundraise in the future? So I'm curious, like, how much does sort of that chatter kind of come up? when you are talking with potential investors
2: it comes up a lot and it, it can be quite frustrating because you know i i get invited to panel discussions all the time to discuss the lack of capital for female founders these are panel discussions hosted by, hosted by vcs or you know they they always like to invite female founders to femtech the latest taboo you know they always like to use the, the word taboo so there's a lot of cliches and there's a lot of like pandering and virtue signaling when it comes to people wanting to be seen as supportive of uh, female founders or gynecological health. But if you look at the statistics, it's actually getting worse. You know, Mm -hmm. since 2019, since 2020, there's been a decrease in the number of gynecological health companies funded, in the number of female founders funded, in the overall total percentage of both venture capital and public capital. That went to a female founding teams and to gynecological health. I think that will change. I think it has to change because, you know, people like the founder of Maven will at one point become financially independent and they will start investing themselves and they will have the knowledge of being able to recognize, okay, this is what good looks like in female health. This is a, a great female founder. I want to invest in them. So it will change, but it will be a gradual, long change. And it's going to be peaks and troughs. Right. I don't think it's going to be a straight straight line.
0: Related question, just from your personal experience, you talked about eyes to the ground and things like that when you're in the rooms. But has it changed at all since you were first going out and then to later rounds? Have you noticed an increase in comfort or a decrease in this concept of sort of it being taboo? Or has it remained relatively consistent?
2: So... I first raised seed, which I think was easier because there's more female investors in seed than there is series A, series B, series C. So I thought series A was harder. Mm. Maybe also because people think, oh, series A, you know, it's like a serious thing. and
0: You need numbers and stuff.
2: Yeah. And and we have numbers. (laughs) We've had series A metrics for a long time. I believe you do. But but I think people still think, oh, it's to do with vaginas. Therefore, it's not serious. Mm.
0: Right, right. I think because this is what and Becca and Dom on, on our team on the TC Plus side have done a great job kind of tracking all this and making sure that like the TechCrunch readers know that despite a lot of the noise that is out there, like like you said, the trend is still down. Right. But it's interesting that that you bring up like there is kind of peaks and valleys and that that will continue to happen. But what do you think influences that other than you mentioned sort of successful exits for like the current generation of female founders who might put money back into the ecosystem? What other things can kind of influence turning the trend around and having it be, you know, net upwards, regardless of individual fluctuations?
2: Um, There need to be more successes within femtech and more successes within gynecological health. But also, if people could only start looking at gynecological health in the way that they look at, for example, cybersecurity. So most investors don't understand cybersecurity in any meaningful level of detail. You know, it's a complex, specific area of knowledge that you can gain knowledge about if you just try You know, if you start reading papers or start speaking to industry stakeholders and I think the biggest change will happen when people stop thinking about, you know, gynecological health and adult content in the same category Mm -hmm. and start seeing it as, you know, it is a valid commercial industry that can produce commercial successes and it needs to be treated like any other industry. So without stigma that's currently attached to it. I think if if investors could start looking at the space and reading about the space and learning about the issues and the opportunities in the way that they would approach any other industry, Mm -hmm. that would make a huge difference.
1: No, it's really good to hear what you just said about the cybersecurity piece of it, because... I feel like that is something that VCs sort of, it's like a crutch where they're like, oh, I don't understand that sector. I'm not investing in it. Yeah. Whereas All then the they'll time. turn to another sector they don't understand and invest yeah. in it anyway. I feel I definitely have felt that frustration just from talking to different venture investors about trends. So it I don't know. It's hard to hear that it translates across to founders as well.
0: But that, that's like, they become armchair experts in everything else overnight, right? right? It's like, oh, I didn't understand crypto like yesterday and now I'm just blathering nonstop about crypto. And then Femtech, they're like, I can never understand that. How could I possibly? It's like, what? What are you talking about? Now you're an expert in aerospace all of a sudden.
1: Right. <laughs> Flying cars, electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah, vehicles, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> vertical takeoff and landing. <laughs> yeah. They, they do often uh, say,
2: um, we don't have any female partners on our team and it's hard to get traction for a femtech company without a female partner on our team or there wasn't anyone that could try your product in our offices so we can't understand what to what to make of it or my other favorite is like my assistant didn't like your tampons so we're not going to take conversations further
1: oh <laughs> how many other wow. potential investments does that assistant try first i'd love right, to know yeah.
0: Did you put them on a SpaceX (laughs) rocket? And then you were like, well, she loved the SpaceX (laughs) rocket. Loved the ride. So here, we'll back it now. Yeah. (laughs) Totally absurd. Uh, So just um, to step away, Valentina, just a bit from the specifics of day right now, I'm curious about like your history with entrepreneurship. Like, how did you decide that you even wanted to found a company? Was it because of the the nature of the challenge and the problem that you saved or or saw or did you always kind of want to get into that
2: so i grew up promising myself that i would never be an entrepreneur (laughs) because my, my father my father was a micro entrepreneur so he had lots of little businesses here and there you know he had he was driving a taxi he was like teaching people german at one point he was like doing plastering work he would always have these like little businesses and on the other side, I had my mother who was a bank clerk. You know, she had so much job security and predictable pay every month and like fixed working hours. And on the other side, my dad was always on the phone, always stressed. He had like five heart attacks. Oh. And I was like, you're not getting like, why are you doing this to yourself? I would never be an entrepreneur. So I grew right. up promising myself that I would have like a nice nine to five profession. And that's why I studied law and, and economics. You know, I, I didn't prepare myself to be an entrepreneur. And I don't think that I'm going to be a serial entrepreneur. Mm. I'm particularly excited about gynecological health because it really does drive me this will to fix the injustices that exist within gynecological health. But then also they allows me to stimulate all of my different intellectual curiosities, whether it's about brand building or designing machines or setting up production And it also allows me to have a a platform to not just make change in gynecological health, but also change the, you know, small things in society that I don't think are right. Like, for example, because it's my company, I can decide, Okay, well, we're going to hire people that survived human trafficking in our production facilities because I think Mm. that there's insufficient social programs for people that survive human trafficking. And that's what we're going to do. Or, you know, something else that we just decided to do during COVID was we started adding masks, face masks with our branding to the boxes of tampons and people could pay an extra five pounds for the mask. And we, we were such a small company at, at that point, but we were able through this initiative to generate the entire yearly budget for the UK's largest charity that supports victims of domestic abuse. It's called Women's Aid. So it it drives me being an entrepreneur because I can satisfy all of my different intellectual curiosities, but also mm. because I have so much freedom over how I choose to invest my time or how I choose to invest the company's resources, we can do these small little societal changes that don't have a huge impact, but you know they have an impact in my small universe. And if, if everyone can have a, a small impact in their small universe, I think things really change systematically and, and long-term.
0: Yeah, that's a huge advantage. And that one that I've heard kind of expressed that way before because, yeah, it's like if you're anywhere else, right, no matter how much your level of contribution, like you see like, oh, I can do this small thing and it will cost us, you know, nothing or relatively little and it will have X impact. It's kind of like, oh, that's a great idea, Daryl, bring it up at the budget meeting or whatever. And then it never happens. But for the record, I have these great ideas all the time and I'm always (laughs) trying to help and uh, it never, never goes anywhere. That's absolutely not true. Uh, But now I'm going to try to bring it up, but again, <laughs> um, yeah, that that's uh, really inspiring. But then, so like, you, but you don't think you want to be a serial entrepreneur? So, like, do you want to talk more about that? Is it because yeah. you know the the downsides of it, or what?
2: Yeah, it's because of the downsides of it, and and that's another mm-hmm. thing that I'm quite quite passionate about spreading information on. There's a real health cost to becoming an entrepreneur. So there's a psychological health cost and a physiological health cost and there's no way around it because you have to put in these super long hours in order to right. get your company off the ground, which means you won't be able to invest in nutrition, invest in exercise, have a good night's sleep, meditate, etc. like that's not possible especially if you're a single founder to begin with and if you're self-funding your company to begin with, you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices which when done Continuously for long periods of time, end up having a tangible impact on your physiological and and psychological health. So, you know, in in my experience of entrepreneurship, I've, you know, acquired type 2 diabetes because of heightened cortisol levels. And I'm 28, you know, like I shouldn't have type 2 diabetes. And I've also had to part ways with a lot of friends who simply can't understand why I'm, you know, I always forget their birthdays or I'm never available on the weekend or like I'm never available on short notice because it's just so, oh, consuming to birth an idea to life and Mm -hmm. transform it into a company and and when you have a team you know you you have people that have children and their children have tuition fees and like all of this responsibility you just get an expanded sense of responsibility and it's a crushing load to carry and it's not something that they want to do for the long term it's like I, I, I love that I'm able to do it now but I don't think it's a sustainable way of being I, I would like to have a different lifestyle in the future as well so I, I wouldn't I don't see myself being like an Elon Musk acquiring companies here and there and
0: yeah I think <laughs> I think that's a great example because no one should aspire to his personal life I don't think
2: but <laughs> I think if, if he just slept more <laughs> he would be making better <laughs> decisions
0: yes absolutely <laughs> Uh-huh. Good point. I mean, that is like, this is also something that's not discussed often. And I do think there's a lot of discussion around the idea that those things are not required, right? Like, they, especially now, I think the counter hustle culture narrative has been, oh, well, you can sort of do it all while, uh, you know, enjoying a moderate lifestyle, balanced lifestyle. But that is possibly more damaging because it's kind of like... Misleads people into believing that that is possible when perhaps it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on it. This is just me observing. I don't live this lifestyle. I right? think,
2: especially for women, it's one of the greatest lies we have ever been sold is that you can have it all. You can mm-hmm. have it all, but not all at the same time. And whenever I see, because right now it's like very, and this might be a very controversial opinion, and like I support, you know, working mothers, obviously, but whenever I'm on LinkedIn and I see someone post a photo. You know, they're in bed, they have their laptop on top of them and their baby on top of them. And they're like, Hey, I'm balancing motherhood and, and work. I'm like, Are you though? Because are you mm. being present with your child or are you answering emails? And also what if I don't want to multitask all the time? Like the, the whole concept of like being in multiple places all at the same time, you can never dedicate your full cognitive ability to any one area fully. And there's plenty of studies that show how being forced to multitask and being forced to divert your attention to many different areas actually lead to early cognitive decline and increase your risk of Alzheimer's and, and dementia. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm somewhat sympathetic with the anti-hustle movement because I do mm-hmm. think it's become a little bit of a cliche. It's like, you know, wake up at 4 a.m., work 16-hour days. That's that's one extreme. But then on the other hand is the other extreme, which says, We're women, we're warriors, we're supermodels, we're entrepreneurs and mothers. Like, yes, maybe at one stage of your life, you can be all of those things. But Mm. being expected to be all of those things at the same time, I think that's crushing.
0: Yeah. I think the expectations part is the part that it, like using that word is the key ingredient there, right? Cause it is like, it's heaping upon expectations, even though it's meant to be sort of permissive or liberating, I think, in the way that some people deliver it. But yeah, I appreciate your perspective on that. But yeah, I'm like constantly, well, we talk to a lot of hustle culture people too, you know, and they're, they articulate it and you're like, yeah, but like, that doesn't sound good. That sounds terrible. And also by and large, they're young men. And it's like, you don't understand how many advantages you're starting out with that like mean that the hustle culture thing is possible for you in a way that it's totally impossible for people of different ages or people of different income brackets or people, you know, different cultural backgrounds. Right.
2: Or even just women, because, you know, we we are expected to take the burden of looking after family members, even before we have children, you know, in in my family, I've always, even though I'm one of the younger children, I've always been expected to look after my older brothers, you know, because I'm the woman, I'm the nurturer. Right. And, and I've always been expected to look after my parents. And I noticed that at work as well, people on the team, I think, often expect me to be exceptionally nurturing and exceptionally understanding because I'm a woman in a way that they wouldn't expect I think a man to be as understanding as nurturing as empathetic yeah and I think that's a yeah that's just an additional burden that you you have to carry which you people don't realize I don't think as much as they should
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: I was just gonna say when you're talking about sort of the hustle culture and trying to avoid Some of those pitfalls that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially as Daryl just mentioned, champion and really think are sort of assets to how they've performed. It seems like you have taken some steps to sort of put things in place at the company for everyone to not be able to feel like they have to sort of check into that hustle culture mindset. And maybe if you want to talk about that and kind of what sort of positive impacts you've seen from what you've done.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So we had a a crazy hard 2020. We were just unreasonably unlucky in the sense that we were hit with a wave of COVID infections really early on. So end of February, early March 2020. And that was before people knew what COVID was. And there weren't like spaces in hospitals. We didn't know how serious it was, what the treatments would be. We had no information. And then we had the second wave of misfortunes, which is that in Succession. So we were a team of seventeen people. Seven people lost uh, parents to to COVID one after the other. So it was a lot of trauma to go through as a very small team. And I didn't know what to do. I I just remember feeling so lost in terms of like how do I show up for my team? How do I support people? And that's when we started trialing four day weeks because you know we wanted to give people that extra time to be present with their families or to pursue their hobbies and do things that are not only related to sitting in front of a screen in, in a Zoom call. And we decided that we were going to run it as an experiment for uh, six months and, and measure whether the initiative was effective on the basis of whether we were still hitting our OKRs and on the basis of what the team MPS was, so where were people Continuing to be happy with uh, the organization and within the organization, and our performance on OKRs increased and our MPS increased in the two quarters mm. in which we were measuring the impact of the of the four day weeks. And now, as we're continuing to to scale as an organization, we're continuing to offer full flexibility on Fridays so people can. We no longer mandate that people don't work on Friday. So we don't like shut your access to Slack off or shut your access to Gmail off. But we also don't book team-wide meetings. There's no expectation that you have to work on Fridays. And if you manage to like organize your time Monday to Thursday so that you don't have to work on Friday, then you just take Friday off. And this flexibility, I think, has helped a lot of people understand the virtue of balance. Because, you know, you you work in a sprint usually from Monday to Thursday, but then you have this deep rest and this deep recovery in right. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that's one of, the, one of the things that we're doing. I think I have quite a sound relationship with my mental health thanks to being in therapy for a really long time. So it's now my 10th year of being in therapy. I started therapy when I was 18. And that's something that I that we offer to the company as a whole. So we have professional and personal coaching available to everyone within day. So that we encourage people to take that fixed moment of introspection and retrospection where, you know, because we we put everything in our calendars, right, like our lives are basically run by our calendars. And if you have a fixed slot, which in which you're only required to think about how you're feeling, think about what what you want to change, It really forces people to have that time dedicated to your inner world and and your psyche. And that's something that we we try to encourage more of within the company in order to help facilitate the introspection, which is needed for people to reject extreme hustle culture on one side and extreme, I can have it all on the other side. I can have it all without sacrifices on the other side.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Actually, um, yeah, we should do that. Maybe, Becca, we should do some some four day week stuff, and the health care like would be wonderful as well. But <laughs> um, no, we I think we're pretty permissive on that front. But it's the like we've always sort of been a remote first culture, or uh, almost remote only. But like, kind of the expectation is if the thing's working. I don't really care what anybody's doing any of the time, right? As long as the wheels are still on the bus and it's driving around. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's an approach that people are getting more comfortable with, but that has been difficult for some people. But it sounds like you were kind of born there anyway, or the company was born there. But it's great that you've made that explicit, right? And do you find it generates any kind of... I'm just curious about when you made it sort of optional with the Fridays, because I can see how like the one rule for all would be like, everybody would be like, good, 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 good. Whereas if you say like optional, is there an emerging thing of like, some people are like, well, I'm going to work on Fridays and then I'm the keener. Or are you paying that close attention to kind of what's going on?
2: So we we do call people out, especially if they do work that involves other people. So you're Mm. like trying to take from other people's time. And we also encourage the managers of the teams to have a really close relationship with their team members so they can ensure everyone has the best working conditions at work for them specifically. And we, you know, we were worried, okay, so if we introduce like Fridays or like, is there going to be a group of overachievers that emerges and are they going to be like resentful to the Perceived underachievers.
0: Yeah, I that's the group I'm always trying to suppress. A tech crunch. I'm always doing my best to discourage them and get them to slack off more. But like, it ends up being the most difficult in my experience as a manager. Maybe more difficult than the opposite to handle, right? Which is that kind of like it's almost a martyrdom or something. Not naming names. Obviously, Becca's not in that group, but you know. Yeah, I will always accept if you tell me I'm working too much.
2: Something that we started uh, doing recently, actually, is hosting interventions for people. Um, So Mm -hmm. if if I see that someone is being like over the top focused on work, not taking time off, working too long hours, working really outside of working hours, etc., I will just host an intervention for them. and. like create a bunch of bullet points and and just like force that time for us to change the way in which this this person works and like force them to take time off so they can acquire a new perspective. But on the four day weeks, what's interesting is we're seeing some of our best achievers, like the the best performing people in the company are those that are like really firm with their boundaries. Like I work Mm. from Monday to Thursday and within Monday to Thursday, I do incredible work, but then you can't reach me on yeah. friday saturday sunday i'll be back on monday and i'll be you know my best self at work and i'll have you know lots of patience for you and your problems but monday to sunday can't
0: reach me oh that's great i just ask that one day you publish all these results in some kind of a white paper or something i feel like it would yeah. be super interesting and yeah. we,
2: the caveat here is that we are a small company you know it's a it's a company yeah, yeah. of 40 people so we're yet to see how this will scale and You know, it's it's a small sample size. This wouldn't be a a good enough scientific
0: experiment, right? Right, but just an interesting thing, maybe to share on LinkedIn or something. You know, better than ninety percent of the content on there. (laughs) 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 But Valentina, we're we're just about out of time. But I think it's been fantastic talking to you, and I really think this is the company day is super interesting. Your approach to building and managing a company is super interesting as well. And I we didn't even get into it, but I think the future for Day sounds fantastic because you can tell that your approach is very analytical and very holistic, and it sounds like that is the direction you want to go in, right? So it's like these are the yeah. building blocks to something that will be really transformative for women's health. Um, so yeah, thanks again for joining us. Oh,
2: thank you, and I, I'm really glad we didn't just go through the the standard questions of what was your valuation and
0: oh yeah, we don't what's your we don't even. <laughs> We don't even care about that stuff. Well, Becca might actually. Yeah, I kind of care about that stuff. (laughs) Uh, You guys can follow up about that later. But yeah, (laughs) thanks again, Valentina.
2: Thank you so much.
0: All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Valentina, which ranged far and wide. What did you think about her and about Day?
1: Yeah. No, I think she makes a lot of really good, interesting points just about sort of what it's like to raise money for femtech, something that you just keep hearing more and more about. There are more investors interested in it, more companies getting started, such a huge focus on it. But interesting to sort of hear that she's still hitting the same roadblocks people were hitting five years ago.
0: Yeah, and she seemed to say... What was really surprising to me is like I thought there would be a gradual ramp in difficulty, like down, but it seems like not. It was the opposite. It was as you get into more institutional money, more later stage money, there's mo- there's maybe more resistance. Which I wonder if it comes down to the money behind the money. You always wonder about you know LPs and big institutional funds. Like maybe there they have strange clauses or things preventing money from going into these. I mean, it'd be really weird to be like no femtech, but. Who knows? I mean, curmudgeonly old white men are awful people, and maybe they have some of these things.
1: I also feel like it could be like the white man embarrassment, like domino effect, Mm. where it's like the VC doesn't want to invest because then they're going to have to tell their LP about it. And that's probably way (laughs) more embarrassing to them than just hearing about it in this one pitch meeting. So they're like... Might as well just avoid it at all
0: costs. Wow. That's a horrible thing, but probably has happened more than once. But uh, yeah, I thought like she brought it up. That she drew the comparison of it's considered in some of these rooms on the same playing field as porn, right? Which is a famously a category that a lot of investors won't touch with a 10-foot pole. Likely, I mean, often due to vice clauses from LPs, right?
1: Mm-hmm. But that's so interesting to me because like, when she was explaining the startup to us, it's so health focus. Like it's so listening to almost any type of, well, I don't want to say it was standard or anything like that because it wasn't, but it didn't particularly come across differently than hearing about other kinds of like, say medical devices, consumer health products and the like. So it is interesting. It's like you say vagina and the men run.
0: right? It's like, come on now. Yeah. It's
1: 2022.
0: Well, it's not even. I bet, I mean, at, at that point, they would already be gone. Because earlier, at some point, you said tampon. And that was enough to get them out of the room. If you vagina, a vagina, they would, <laughs> they would hit the fire alarm and just evacuate the <laughs> building.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: so th- that part was like, she was very candid there. I mean, throughout she was candid. But she was also, you know, super forthcoming about her ideas around work-life balance and what's possible, what isn't as a founder, and then also kind of like how she tries to instill those values in the company. So what did you think about that part of our discussion?
1: Yeah, no, I definitely thought that was interesting. Of course, it's sad that they sort of came to those conclusions because the company employees had just so much tragedy over such a short period of time, which obviously is not great by any means. But yeah, I thought it was particularly interesting, not only the flexible work policy, but the it's flexible. But if you aren't taking the Fridays off, like we're going to have, to talk to you about it, which I thought, I feel like you hear about flexible workspaces, but some of those places still kind of seem to champion the employees who do work on that day that in theory everyone's supposed to be off. And there is that sort of backhanded kind of like power struggle there. But I really like their approach and just being like, no, if you're working the day we tell you to take off, we're going to talk to you about it and find out why.
0: Yeah, literal intervention. She was talking about for people who they notice have like a pattern of of working excessively, right? So that's uh, that's pretty extreme. I mean we should start doing that, but I don't think I don't think I'd have to intervene with anyone, frankly. I think our workforce is pretty good at taking it easy. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I love you all, TechCrunch employees, if you're listening to this. There's no one. But
1: <laughs> no, any one time someone sends an email. they're supposed to be out won't name names it's been happening this week to respond and be like enjoy your vacation
0: (laughs) i know we do need to enforce it more i think because it is yeah it's i I like to hear that because i I asked the question because i was like it seems like a lot of people do that with the intent that it kind of backfires you know like there's this like Mm -hmm. it's like the unlimited vacation trope of like oh don't worry you have unlimited vacation but what that really means is we would rather you not take any vacation at all and you're all competing with each other to see who can be the biggest keener, right?
1: Mm, More of a trap.
0: It's a trap. At the end of the day. It's definitely a trap, yeah. but I. So the other part of it that I thought was was interesting was not the the way that she does the workforce, but rather the way that she thinks about it herself. Like she was the one, she expressly said, she's not going to be a serial entrepreneur. And the reason was that that work-life balance is not achievable in this lifestyle, right? Which I think is brave of someone to say, and also counter to a lot of, you know, what the narrative is these days. But what did you think about that?
1: Yeah, I thought that was just such an interesting point, because I feel we never talk about that in this space specifically, but in sort of the broad conversation about career paths, that comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. People talking about, oh, well, I love this passion or this hobby, I would do it as a career, but the hours, Mm -hmm. like I know for myself, I used to Work as a line cook, I never dreamed of actually going into that field full-time because of the hours. It's horrible Holidays hours. Weekend. It's yeah. horrible hours. And so I feel like we talk about that in so many other just broader conversations and you never hear that from entrepreneurs, but it makes total sense. Maybe some are afraid, like she was saying about hustle culture, some are afraid to ad- admit that because maybe it makes them think they're going to come across as less committed yeah. or less of one of those hustlers, which, you know, some VC firms unfortunately still look for, but... I think that's ridiculous. I think it's really interesting to hear that perspective because I'm sure a lot of people are thinking it, and just few feel they can say it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that, yeah, it's that blend of oh, it is a lot of hard work and it's a lot of long hours, but I also don't like that or want that in perpetuity. Versus, I think we tend to hear either the narrative of like oh, don't worry, you can you can have reasonable working hours and also be a founder. It is possible. The hustle culture thing isn't real, or we hear the hustle boys being, cause they are mostly boys who espouse this belief is like, go for it, go for it, go for it, work your ass off, it'll be fine and just drink a ton of Red Bull and it's an awesome blast and everybody just hangs out and has a cool time building this product or whatever. But you don't hear, I think what Valentina expressed, which is like the reality of like, no, it is both very hard work and also totally, totally unsustainable. Right?
1: It also for me comes across as almost, she feels that way because she's not as passionate about being an entrepreneur, because she's more passionate about just the problems yeah. she's trying to solve. Because yeah. I know I've heard that from, especially you get this in the manufacturing sector a lot, like founders who left big companies to fix a problem, who were like, yeah, I never wanted to do this, but I just saw such a compelling problem to solve or such a compelling opportunity that I just was never going to be able to do it in any other way, mm-hmm. which I feel like is what she talked about, like to sort of hit some of these goals she's going for. She could never work at like a Tampax and no. build this out sort of thing. It's like you kind of... If you want to go for it, that entrepreneurship is kind of your only choice.
0: That's right. Yeah. She so had no option, which is what you want in your leaders as well as in your entrepreneurs. So I think that's a good quality to have. Mm-hmm. Becca, uh, yeah, I think we will be hearing from Valentina again, hopefully on this show. We really only scratched the surface, I think, with her. We don't do that many repeat guests, but she might be one of them. But yeah, I think it was a good show. Definitely. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor, Daryl Etherington. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Kel Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash foundlistenersurvey. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.